Episode 43. Winston took up his glass with a certain eagerness. Wine was a thing he had read and dreamed about, like the glass paperweight or Mr. Charrington's half-remembered rhymes. It belonged to the vanished romantic past, the olden time, as he liked to call it in his secret thoughts. For some reason, he had always thought of wine as having an intensely sweet taste, like that of blackberry jam and an immediate intoxicating effect. Actually, when he came to swallow it, the stuff was distinctly disappointing. The truth was that after years of gin drinking, he could barely taste it. He set down the empty glass. Then there is such a person as Goldstein, he said. Yes, there is such a person, and he is alive. Where, I do not know. And the conspiracy, the, the organization, is it real? It is not simply an invention of the thought police? No, it is real. The Brotherhood, we call it. You will never learn much more about the Brotherhood than that it exists and that you belong to it. I will come back to that presently. He looked at his wristwatch. It is unwise even for members of the inner party to turn off the telescreen for more than half an hour. You ought not to have come here together, and you will have to leave separately. You, comrade, he bowed his head to Julia, will leave first. We have about 20 minutes at our disposal. You will understand that I must start by asking you certain questions. In general terms, what are you prepared to do? Anything we are capable of, said Winston. O'Brien had turned himself a little in his chair so that he was facing Winston. He almost ignored Julia, seeming to take it for granted that Winston could speak for her. For a moment, the lids flitted down over his eyes. He began asking his questions in a low, expressionless voice as though this were a routine, a sort of catechism, most of whose answers were known to him already. You are prepared to give your lives, yes. You are prepared to commit murder, yes. To commit acts of sabotage, which may cause the death of hundreds of innocent people, yes. To betray your country to foreign powers, yes. You are prepared to cheat, to forge, to blackmail, to corrupt the minds of children, to distribute habit-forming drugs, to encourage prostitution, to disseminate venereal diseases, to do anything which is likely to cause demoralization and weaken the power of the party? Yes. If, for example, it would somehow serve our interests to throw sulfuric acid in a child's face, are you prepared to do that? Yes. You are prepared to lose your identity and live out the rest of your life as a waiter or a dock worker? Yes. You are prepared to commit suicide if and when we order you to do so? Yes. You are prepared, the two of you, to separate and never see one another again? No, broke in Julia. It appeared to Winston that a long time passed before he answered. For a moment he seemed even to have been deprived of the power of speech. His tongue worked soundlessly, forming the opening syllables first of one word, then of the other, over and over again. 
Until he had said it, he did not know which word he was going to say. No, he said, finally. You did well to tell me, said O'Brien. It is necessary for us to know everything. He had turned himself toward Julia and added in a voice with somewhat more expression in it. Do you understand that even if he survives, it may be as a different person? We may be obliged to give him a new identity. His face, his movements, the shape of his hands, the color of his hair, even his voice would be different. And you yourself might have become a different person. Our surgeons can alter people beyond recognition. Sometimes it is necessary. Sometimes we even amputate a limb. Winston could not help snatching another sidelong glance at Martin's Mongolian face. There were no scars that he could see. Julia had turned a shade paler so that her freckles were showing, but she faced O'Brien boldly. She murmured something that seemed to be assent. Good, then it is settled. There was a silver box of cigarettes on the table. With a rather absent-minded air, O'Brien pushed them toward the others, took one himself, then stood up and began to pace slowly to and fro as though he could think better standing. They were very good cigarettes, very thick and well-packed with an unfamiliar silkiness in the paper. O'Brien looked at his wristwatch again. You had better go back to your pantry, Martin, he said. I shall switch on in a quarter of an hour. Take a good look at these comrades' faces before you go. You will be seeing them again. I may not. Exactly as they had done at the front door, the little man's dark eyes flickered over their faces. There was not a trace of friendliness in his manner. He was memorizing their appearance, but he felt no interest in them, or appeared to feel none. It occurred to Winston that his synthetic face was perhaps incapable of changing its expression. Without speaking or giving any kind of salutation, Martin went out, closing the door silently behind him. O'Brien was strolling up and down, one hand in the pocket of his black overalls, the other holding his cigarette. You understand, he said, that you will be fighting in the dark. You will always be in the dark. You will receive orders and you will obey them without knowing why. Later, I shall send you a book from which you will learn the true nature of the society we live in and the strategy by which we shall destroy it. When you have read the book, you will be full members of the Brotherhood. But between the general aims that we are fighting for and the immediate tasks of the moment, you will never know anything. I tell you that the Brotherhood exists but I cannot tell you whether its numbers are a hundred members or 10 million. From your personal knowledge, you will never be able to say that it numbers even as many as a dozen. You will have three or four contacts who will be renewed from time to time as they disappear. As this was your first contact, it will be preserved. When you receive orders, they will come from me. If we find it necessary to communicate with you, it will be through Martin. When you are finally caught, you will confess. That is unavoidable. But you will have very little to confess other than your own actions. You will not be able to betray more than a handful of unimportant people. 
probably you will not even betray me. By that time, I may be dead, or I shall have become a different person with a different face. He continued to move to and fro over the soft carpet. In spite of the bulkiness of his body, there was a remarkable grace in his movements. It came out even in the gesture with which he had thrust a hand into his pocket or manipulated a cigarette. More even than of strength, he gave an impression of confidence and of an understanding tinged by irony. However much in earnest he might be, he had nothing of the single-mindedness that belongs to a fanatic. When he spoke of murder, suicide, venereal disease, amputated limbs, and altered faces, it was with a faint air of persiflage. This is unavoidable, his voice seemed to say. This is what we have to do, unflinchingly. But this is not what we shall be doing when life is worth living again. A wave of admiration almost of worship, flowed out from Winston toward O'Brien. For the moment, he had forgotten the shadowy figure of Goldstein. 